If you'll open up to John chapter 8. <clears throat> Last week we talked about John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy and your grace and blessing on us as a, as a local assembly of your people that we desire to understand your word. We desire to see the light of your word shine on the path of our lives and in our hearts that we would see what's good and what's evil, that we'd be able to walk with you in the light as you've commanded us to do, that we'd be able to shine as lights in this dark world as you've also commanded us to do. We ask as we study your word today that you'd teach our hearts and draw us into your presence and allow us to learn to serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Last week we talked about John chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and we saw that <clears throat> there's seven places in, well, eight, but seven where Jesus makes a defining comment about himself, saying, I'm the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, I'm uh, the good shepherd, I'm the door, I'm uh, the vine, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. And the eighth one I'm referring to just as a title to the whole group because it's, it's later in this chapter, in uh, John chapter 8, verse 58, uh, the Jews were arguing with Jesus about his relationship to Abraham, and Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, at that point, nobody had any doubt what he was doing. Nobody had any doubt how he was using that phrase, I am. They knew that he was claiming deity. And it says they took up stones to stone him. They were going to kill him. <clears throat> they knew exactly who, what he was saying. Well, these other seven, he was doing the same thing, but he had defining remarks about him. And that's where we were last week is in John 8, thir uh, 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. Now, if anybody had thought through the implications of that phrase, they would have realized that if he really was the light of the world, if what he was saying was true, then he was... He had to be the creator, see, because he was the light of the world, not just there in Israel, that he was the light of the world, that he had to be the creator, he had to be the light of Israel, as he had been called in the Old Testament, that he had to be the judge, uh, which he had just demonstrated that he was the judge, but that what he was handing down right now was mercy and grace. If you remember the story in verses 1 through 11, the woman that was brought to him caught in adultery after he ran off the accusers by saying, let he, among you, let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone, and they all left, she stayed there, knowing that he was the judge and counting on him as a righteous, gracious judge to extend mercy if it was available. And he did. She, she stood before him knowing he was her judge, but she met him as her savior in so doing. And that's what we saw <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago. And it's interesting that nobody seemed to have thought through what this comment, I am the light of the world, would imply. In fact, the only response that the, that the Pharisees had was, well, you're testifying regard to, regarding yourself, therefore it's not true. Okay, well, on the face of it, that's kind of illogical. They had asked him over and over, who are you? Well, whatever answer he gave them, he'd be testifying of himself. That's the nature of any testimony. If you're speaking regarding yourself, you're testifying of yourself. That doesn't make it not true. But if there is no corroboration to what you're saying, it's possible it's not true. Well, he didn't address the illogic of what they were saying. He addressed the real issue. Is it true? 
Pharisees said to him, verses 13 through, 19, uh, through 20 we're going to read today. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go, and you cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. You judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet, if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It's also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself. The Father who sent me also bears witness of me. Now, in another passage, we see there's another couple of witnesses he names, so he's definitely not alone. <clears throat> and they said to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, and this is the title of today's message, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And these words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. So let's examine this phrase by phrase. Jesus' first defense is that he himself actually knew where he came from and where he was going. And they didn't. In fact, they couldn't know where he came from or where he was going, not even at a surface level, because they had made no investigation whatsoever. They assumed he came from Nazareth because that's where he grew up. They knew the scripture said he had to be born in Bethlehem. They never asked. He would have told them, yeah, I was born in Bethlehem. Mom and dad moved us to, to back to Nazareth because that's where mom and dad were from. But I was born in Bethlehem. No, they never asked. They didn't ask to see what kind of other prophecies he had already fulfilled. Other people were catching on. Previous chapter, we saw that people were saying, when the real Christ comes, will he do more than this man did? Because they knew he was fulfilling prophecy. They said, how many has he got to fulfill before we recognize him for who he is? Well, <clears throat> that was a good question, but these guys never got there. They simply wanted to silence him. They called him a liar because they wanted to silence him. They weren't concerned with truth. They didn't want to investigate. They wanted him to shut up. <clears throat> number of times over the years, I've heard people declare that the Bible was a fairy tale or that it was fiction, that it was a bald-faced lie, that it was mythology, whatever. And the few occasions where I've had the opportunity to ask them why they thought that, it turned out they didn't know anything about the Bible, or so little it was just laughable. And they understood absolutely none of even the portion they thought they knew. They just wanted it to shut up. They wanted to silence it. They wanted it out of their lives. <clears throat> they were re reacting exactly the same as these Pharisees did with the exact same motive. They weren't concerned about truth. They wanted it silenced. <clears throat> now, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that the gospel always is an offense to everyone at some level. You may not think so. You may think, no, no, I love the gospel. Yes, you do now. But the, there's bad news and good news in the gospel. As we've talked about in the past, every good news is predicated on some pre-existing bad news. In this case, the bad news is we're guilty sinners. Nobody likes to hear that. But that's the beginning note of the good news that Jesus saves. So that's what we need to talk about. Because in 1 Corinthians 1.23, it says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. He was offensive because it made them guilty of his death. And to the Greeks, foolishness. It was offensive to them because, ah, it doesn't even make sense. See, and we do that in our culture. I've heard so many people say, that doesn't even make sense. And 
you know, some portions of it, if I have to measure it by our culture, I'd say, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Think about this. If somebody else, if you were guilty of a capital crime and somebody else was executed, wouldn't that be rather a miscarriage of justice? That's not grace. You see, our law doesn't allow for grace. Our law doesn't allow for a substitution, but God's law is above our law, and his law does make it that a holy, righteous individual can die in the place of a sinner and make the sinner righteous. And that's what Jesus did at the cross. But see, that doesn't make sense in our culture. As Gentiles, we reject it because of that. The Jews re reject it because it makes them guilty of rejecting the Messiah. <clears throat> so how a person responds, responds to this offense, whatever the level of the offense is, how a person responds to that offense is what's going to determine the outcome in their life. Sure, the gospel steps on everybody's toes at one level or another. I've been told that in some cultures the crucifixion itself is the offense because they think that that's such a shameful death that no godly person should ever have to endure that because that's how you would execute a slave, the lowest sort of criminal, and they think it couldn't happen. God wouldn't submit himself to that. So they're offended by the cross specifically. Okay. It's always going to be an offense. Just accept that. But why does it offend people? <clears throat> As we mentioned in the past, every good news is predicated on some pre-existing bad news. Um, I gave the example that I read that Australia had come up with a, uh, what do you call them, anti-venom that covered 85 different kinds of venomous critters, I'll say snakes, because that's the majority of them, in Australia. And I thought, well, that's cool. But then I thought, yeah, but that means they've got 85 different kinds of venomous reptiles in Australia. Well, that's true, too. But that's not all the bad news, because before Ann and I went there, we looked it up. It turns out there's 140 different kinds. They just managed to cover the 85 worst ones, the ones you're most likely to run into, the ones you're most likely to need. So it was good news, but it was based on some horrible news. they got more ways to die down there you can count. So that was some bad news. The good news was the antivenin. In our case, the bad news is our sin, and the good news is Jesus saves. We're going to get there. But we are guilty. We see the whole world condemned in sin, and that is the bad news. We're condemned for two reasons. One, because of the sin of Adam. We call it original sin. That, that phrase, original sin, is not in the Bible. I've heard people complain that, well, you know, the word rapture, that's not even in the Bible. You're right, it's not. Neither is original sin. It's, it's a way that we describe something that very definitely is in the Bible. The rapture very definitely is in the Bible. Original sin very, is very definitely in the Bible. <clears throat> the sin of Adam plunged all of us into spiritual death. The whole human race died spiritually the moment Adam ate that fruit. You'll notice if you go back and read Genesis 3, that nothing happened when Eve ate. She didn't have the authority to make the decision. Yes, Satan went after her first because she was the easiest target. But Adam went in with his eyes open. Adam had the authority to make a decision for the whole human race. And when he did, we all died with him. Like it or not, that's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> so that's one reason. But the other reason, and I, I've only run into a couple of people ever that denied this, is because of our personal sin. We personally, voluntarily make, make decisions to do wrong things, to say mean things, to say untrue things, and so forth. 
we, we, we're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And we commit those sins by choice. Now, if I look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, I'm not going there right now, but if you want, you can go there. <clears throat> it covers the slide of the whole human race from a position of knowing God, which the whole human race knew God in the Garden of Eden, right? There's only two people, and they knew him face to face. Uh, after the flood, there's only eight people, but they knew God. So each in each category, we slid from a position of knowing God to this horrible position of, of universal sin that, that we see the world in today. Now, that's not talking about an individual because none of us start off knowing God. We start off not knowing God. And at some point we are confronted by him and we make a decision regarding him. This is talking about the, the race as a whole. Uh, I guess you could also say, uh, you know, the, when the Jews left Egypt, they all knew God but they slid rapidly away, and so forth. <clears throat> so for those two reasons, we find out that the whole world is guilty of sin. In fact, if you read through Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, by the time you get to Romans chapter 3, verse 19, he's flat out saying that the whole world may be guilty before God and that every mouth may be stopped, closed, that the world is silenced by their guilt, not silencing God because of the, the world's clamor against him, that the world may be silenced because of their sin. And then, the next verse, he starts offering the grace through Jesus. By the time you get to Romans 3.25, you realize that personal faith in Jesus' shed blood is how he ad administers grace. <clears throat> so how are we going to respond to the guilt? If I recognize those two things, that I became a sinner the moment Adam ate that fruit, but I demonstrated every waking moment of my life ever since, because I am a sinner by nature and by choice, then if I accept that and recognize, okay, i got a problem, it's called sin, I'm a, I'm a condemned sinner. There's four ways we can respond to that, to that accusation, even before I accept the idea, if I just hear that accusation, and this is where the outcome is decided. <clears throat> the first way I could, there's really no such thing as right and wrong, I mean, that's something you guys are pushing on everybody else. That's something your society has taught you. You only believe that because that's what you've been taught. Look at the animals. They don't know any, any right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. Okay, you could say that. If you just brush aside any accusation of guilt and say, no, there's no such thing as sin. It's not a very common thing. Uh, most people have a pretty clear recognition there is such a thing as right and wrong. So, I mean, they may not be able to d clearly define what's right and what's wrong, but they know there's such a thing as right and wrong, especially if it happens to them, right? Then they know, well, that was wrong, okay? But they, they, they don't easily take the idea that to deny there's such a thing as right and wrong. They know there is. It's, it's born into us. We recognize the reality of right and wrong. The second way to respond would be to admit that, well, yes, there is sin in the world, but it's just not very important. I mean, God's so high above us, and he's so loving and so forgiveness, so forgiving. We're, he's not going to judge anybody harshly for the sin. I mean, we're just humans, right? Isn't that exactly what, what Satan told Eve in the garden? Thou shalt not surely die. For God doth know that in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt become as gods, knowing good and evil. Yeah. If you haven't tried it, don't judge it if you haven't tried it. Isn't that what the world says? That's what Satan says, too. See, and the problem with that one is that people are also conscious 
of a sense of justice, that wrongs should be righted, that evil should be punished, that good should be rewarded. And since we have an inborn sense of justice, and by the way, even monkeys have that. I've seen demonstrations where they have videotapes of having two monkeys side by side in different cages, and you get the one monkey to do, these are those rhesus monkeys they work with, I think, but to do something, and you give him a grape, and he's happy, he eats his grape. He does it again, you give him a grape. The next one wants something, so he does the same thing, you give him a banana. You go back to the first one, he does his thing again, you offer him a grape, and he throws it at you. He knows, that guy got a banana. I am not eating your stinking grapes anymore. See, a monkey can understand justice, equality, things like that, let alone humans. Yes, we know that. We have an inborn sense of justice. It's hard for us to decide, well, sin doesn't really matter. Why? Because we know it does matter. It does matter. The third response would be to deny that we personally are sinners. I've only had a few people say that. Well, yeah, there is sin in the world, but I'm good. See, we, we wrap ourselves up in our self-righteousness and decide everybody else is bad, but I'm good. Okay, that takes some pretty heavy self-delusion. But ironically, that is where most human religions begin. They start with a, well, yeah, there's sin in the world, and some of it's pretty heavy stuff. But see, we are sinners, but we're not very bad sinners. And so we're going to overbalance all the bad stuff we've done by all the good works that we do. You know, whether it's, you know, praying or giving or, you know, going through some kind of religious uh, rituals, whatever. Most human religions are based on the concept that I can do things to make God accept me. It totally ignores the fundamental concept of the holiness of God and assumes that he can be bought off by our trivial works. Now, Paul addresses that idea in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, by works in other words, then Christ is dead in vain. If, if you can achieve righteousness, a righteous standing before God by doing things, then Jesus died for nothing. And most of us would have a hard time saying that, but that's what we're doing when we think that by our works we can either achieve righteousness or maintain a righteous standing before God. Because neither of those is true. <clears throat> the fourth response is the one God wants from us. The fourth response is full confession of both who we are as sinners, lost sinners, and the fact that we cannot save ourselves. It's confession of two facts. One, that I am a lost sinner, and two, that I cannot save myself, that I need a Savior. See, we don't like that. That offends us. We don't like to think that, that we can't fix it. We like to claim the innate goodness of the human race. God says exactly the opposite. You know, read what God says about the human race, and that includes you and me. Read what he said clear back in Genesis, why he brought the flood, and even after the flood, he says that a man's heart is filled with sin from his youth upward, that all of his thoughts are evil from his youth upward. That's what, that's what he said when only Noah and his family were there. No, the human race is not basically good or innately good or whatever. It's, it's, it's simply not true. We want to look that way, but we're not. <clears throat> 
what he says about us in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, we are all, I love that word, all. You know what all means if you look it up in either Greek or Hebrew? All. That we are all as an unclean thing. And that we have, uh, let me read it, we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses, plural, are as filthy rags. All the things you can do to impress God are not impressing him. That's Isaiah 64, 6. Look it up. There isn't, any, there isn't any wiggle room there. You see, the bad news is all we, like sheep, have gone astray and gone every one to his own way. That's pretty inclusive. That's the bad news. But the great thing is that the good news is in the other half of that same verse. What I'm reading right now is Isaiah 53, 6. The good news is the rest of the verse. The Lord, speaking, it's his personal name, Jehovah, the YHWH, all caps, Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I got the good news and the bad news right in one verse there. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So what are we going to do to grab onto that? You see the difference in that fourth response? The first three found some way to wiggle out and not do what God said. The fourth response does not deny that sin exists. It does not deny that sin's serious, that it matters. It doesn't deny personal guilt, nor does it claim that we can somehow save ourselves. It confesses that Jesus alone can take away my sin and give me a right standing before God. It places my only hope right where it belongs, casting myself completely on the mercy and grace of God. And that's what God's asking us to respond to this combination of bad news and good news that the Bible tells us. It places my only hope right where it belongs, casting myself completely on the mercy and grace of God which he provided for all sinners at the cross. <clears throat> now, how do we embrace that? How do we embrace the cross? Well, we embrace God's chosen sacrifice by faith. Now, what about people before the cross? Well, they embraced his chosen sacrifice by faith, too. In fact, every saved person in the history of the world was saved the exact same way. You may not think so. You look back to Adam and Eve. They placed their faith in the promise Jesus gave. That was Jesus, by the way, standing and talking with them. That Jesus gave regarding the seed of the woman that was coming, the deliverer that was going to come. And that's all they had to hear. Adam placed his faith in that and says God clothed them in a blood sacrifice. He's, he killed animals and skinned them and clothed them in that. And that's the beginning of the trail of blood, the trail of blood sacrifices that began there and runs all the way through the Old Testament, sometimes deep and wide with thousands and thousands of animals being killed every year. Why? Because they're all looking forward to the cross and not a single one of those blood sacrifices of animals could take away sin. But when we get to John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist identifies Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who, can take, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. See, that was a mouthful to them. First place, it's a man. How can he be the Lamb? Second place, how can he take away sin? The, the sacrifices could only set aside sin momentarily. They could cover it. In fact, the word that's translated atonement all the way through the Old Testament is the word kofar, and it means a covering. That's all they were doing. They're covering the sin temporarily, looking forward to the cross. How about the people at the Passover? 
You say, well, those people of the Passover, they were, they were trusting in the blood of that sacrifice. Yeah, they were. Okay, but let's think about it. What'd they do? <clears throat> well, they killed that little lamb, they caught the blood in a, a basin, they took a bundle of hyssop, they dipped it in the blood, and they smacked it on the lintel and the two doorposts. I love that passage. What'd I just do? This is 1,300 years before the cross, 1,500 years before the cross, 1,300 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. And that's definitely the cross. See? But it doesn't end there. That's not all they did. Every person in that household had to make it personal. How'd they do it? Every person in the household had to eat of that lamb. You see, they didn't just sit back and say, yeah, that's a good sacrifice. I approve. Yeah, you did that really symmetrically, too. I like that. No. It didn't stop there. To place their faith in the blood of that lamb, they also ate of that roasted lamb that they cooked that night. They took part of it personally. Okay. <clears throat> when we embrace the cross, we take part in it personally. I recognize not that, yeah, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that nice? No, he died for me personally. My sins put him on that cross. I embrace the cross personally by faith, by recognizing that he died for me personally. It's not just a nice theory about which we should all feel good. It's a reality that you can either take part in personally or not. We need to embrace the truth. We're embracing the cross. We need to embrace the truth. Jesus said in verse 15 that the Pharisees were judging after the flesh. <clears throat> they had corrupt motives. They judged accordingly. All they wanted to do was silence them. They weren't investigating for the truth. They didn't want to know the truth. In this particular ministry, Jesus' ministry while he was on earth, he set aside his position as the judge of all the earth. We first see that title in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, where Abraham addressed him as the judge of all the earth. And Jesus confirmed it in John chapter 5, verse 22, where he said, The Father judges no man, but he's committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men may honor the Father, Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father that sent him. So Jesus is the judge of all the earth. He's the eternal judge, but while he was on earth in his flesh, he set aside judgment. And we saw the perfect example of that in that woman that was brought to him. So he said in verse 16, I judge no man, but if I judge, or I can say when I judge, and he will, he's also the judge on the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. He said, when I judge, my judgment will be true because it will be in full agreement with God the Father. He says, it won't just be me judging. It'll be judging in accordance with God's principles. He'll be right there with me. So the only way for us to survive that judgment is to embrace the truth. The only way for us to survive the overall judgment of God is to embrace the truth, embrace the fact of my sin, embrace the fact that Jesus' blood is the only payment that can take away that sin. <clears throat> I need to embrace the bad news that God hates sin and that judgment is coming. I need to embrace the good news that Jesus saves. The accusation that Jesus made to these people is, you know neither me nor my father. Okay. For years reading this, I just assumed that the word used for know here was the Greek word gnosko, which means an experiential, ongoing, relational knowledge. And I thought he was just saying, you have no relationship with the father. I was wrong. I looked it up. The word is 
the Greek word oida or ido. There's different forms of the same word. But the idea is a factual knowledge. He's saying you don't even know anything about him. You, you don't, not only don't know him as a person, you don't know anything about him. <clears throat> you see that? Those two words, one of them, gnosko, always means an experiential knowledge that you can grow in. I mean, I can say I know Judy, but I can only know her so well. She lives miles away from me, and the only time I ever see her is here at church, or once in a while I'll run into her at Bymart, I think. But uh, I can only know her so well. I can know my wife a lot better. I live with her. Well, this last three months she's been living with her mom and dad. But when, when, when that goes away, when she doesn't have to take care of her dad anymore, she's coming home. Oh, by the way, tomorrow is 41 years I've had with that young lady. So we're getting to know each other pretty well. I got a round of applause. <laughs> I'm so glad to have her. Yeah, she did. That's exactly right. Thank you. You got that right. <clears throat> she put up with me for 41 years. <clears throat> Some of you know what that means. So let's talk about this. Those two words, oida and gnosko, are both used in a passage in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 16. I'm not going to turn there right now, but I'm going to remind you of the story. I really would suggest you look it up later. Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. It's a delightful passage. I laugh every time I read it. You see, what happened is <clears throat> where Paul was working, uh, every so often he'd cast out demons in somebody's life. And it didn't happen very often in the book of Acts. It was kind of trailing off. It wasn't happening very often anymore. I think demon possession primarily happened while Jesus was on earth, it seems, when I read the scripture. Uh, but there was these unbelieving Jews who claimed that they were exorcists and they were selling their services as exorcists. And there was one guy named Sceva and his seven sons were claimed to be exorcists. And so they thought they would, they saw Paul realize he's the real McCoy. He just says the word and the demons leave. So we'll try his way. Well, there's a problem there. What they did is they decided they were going to use the name of Jesus, just like Paul did. And they stood before a demon-possessed man. They were in a house where this demon-possessed man was, and they spoke to that evil spirit, saying, We command you, by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. They knew that's all Paul had to do, is just say, I command you by the name of Jesus. Well, so they tried that. And what happened was hilarious to me. Now, I'm going to first read it the way the King James reads it. It says, that the Spirit answered them <clears throat> and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says he jumped on them, he beat up all seven of them, they ran out of the house bleeding and minus their clothes. And I just think that would make a great movie. <clears throat> but see, if you read that in the Greek, he does not use the same word for know. When he said Jesus I know and Paul I know, he used two different words. If you read it in a modern translation, the way it reads correctly, it says, Jesus I know and Paul I know about. In fact, some of them say, Paul, I've heard of. I've heard of Paul. Okay, so the first one, Jesus I know, it was the Gnosko knowledge. He had known Jesus on a relational basis since the day Jesus created him. 
Yes, he had a gnosko knowledge of Jesus, an experiential, ongoing, relational knowledge of Jesus, and he knew that Jesus was his judge, and he knew that Jesus was going to cast him into the lake of fire eventually. He knows that. He says, I know Jesus. And I know about Paul. He used the oida word there. I've heard of him. I know about him. Never met him, but I know about him. So there's the contrast between those two ideas. And what Jesus told the Pharisees using the oida word is you don't know anything about my father and you don't know anything about me. He wasn't saying they lack an experiential relational knowledge of God. There's some believers that lack an experiential relationship, relation, relational knowledge of God because they don't bother to read his word and get to know him. They know him as their savior, but that's about it. They've, they're kind of dead on the vine because they're, they're not getting anything from God to feed on. But he wasn't accusing them of that. He said, if you, know, knew, if you knew anything about my father, you'd know about me. And that's true. If they had learned anything about the Father in the Old Testament, they would have recognized that the prophecies clearly pointed to the Son, and they would have gotten to know about him, but they didn't. <clears throat> so the, the Pharisees weren't just lacking a relationship with God. They were so far removed from the truth that Jesus said they knew nothing about him. Now, later on in verse 30, we see that some believed. Not necessarily the Pharisees. There was a lot of other people there, too. <clears throat> and in verse 20, we see that the ones that wanted to arrest him couldn't. It says that his time was not yet come. It says they could not lay hands on him. Why? Who was still in control? He was. He was still in charge. They couldn't arrest him yet because it wasn't time. They wanted to. Now what about that experiential knowledge? A moment ago I said there's people, believers, that don't have much of an experiential knowledge of God. And that's true. <clears throat> Once a person has confessed that they need a Savior and has personally placed their full trust in Jesus as that Savior, they have the oida knowledge that Jesus told the Pharisees they were lacking. You know him, barely. You know him as your Savior. You're glad to know him. But we're then acknowledged, we're admonished, we're encouraged, we're commanded to grow in the other kind of knowledge, the experiential knowledge, the personal knowledge, the relational knowledge, where we get to know Jesus, where we get to know the Father. How? <clears throat> you see, he's, he's the holy God who chose us from the foundation of the world in Christ to be with him forever. He reached out to the whole world. He paid the sin debt of the whole world, offering eternal life to the whole world. But the whole world generally ignores him. <clears throat> I ignored him for the first 18 years of my life. I was an atheist. And just after I turned 18, I don't know, four or five months after I turned 18, through the work of other people, through the words of other people, through the prayers of a lot of other people, God managed to touch my heart and turn me around. Since then, I've been getting to know him. See? I rejected the concept of him prior to that. I didn't have the oida knowledge that Jesus told the Pharisees they lacked. I lacked it too. They claimed to know him. I claimed he didn't exist. <clears throat> but we're in the same boat. We're both lost as a ball in high grass. Okay. Since that day, I've been growing in the other kind of knowledge, the gnosko knowledge, the experiential knowledge. You see, we entered in by faith. We see the invitation that who says, whosoever will may come. We read the 
the promise that said, whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And at some point we entered in by faith. A little further in, though, as we're learning more and reading the Bible, we started thinking, whoa, how did I get here? And we look around at the door that we came in by and see on the inside of the door it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. What? I thought I chose. I, I accepted an invitation. Yeah, you did. You're right. That is free will. It is a choice that you made. But the fact is that before he created the world, God chose as a group those who would believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, I, I, and, if I, and I, if I am lifted up above the earth, will draw all men unto myself. He's the magnet. He's drawing the whole human race. But if I hold a magnet over a pile of dust on the shop floor, what am I doing? I'm sorting it by which things are responsive to magnetism. I might be holding that magnet there because I want the iron filings. I might be holding the magnet there because the iron filings are what I don't want. I want to get them out. Maybe I'm a silversmith, and I want the silver dust that's there, but I want to get the iron out of it. So we use the magnet, get the iron out, and then scoop up your silver or whatever it is. But he draws the whole world. <clears throat> he reached out to the whole world. He paid the sin debt of the whole world, offering eternal life to the whole world. And we entered in by faith, by free choice. And now we know, looking back, that we're chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. But from that moment that we entered in, we're called to follow him, to trust him, to learn from him, to spend time in his word, specifically learning his word and learning how to apply it to our own lives, to learn how to use the tools he's given you as believers to, to work and to serve and to use the light of God's word to walk by. That's what we're told to do with it. <clears throat> See, this is all part of embracing Jesus. It's not just concepts, it's a person. Most religions give some sort of lip service to honoring Jesus. Uh, they'll say, oh, he was a great prophet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the Islamic people say that. They say, oh, no, Jesus was great. It's just that you guys are all wrong because you're not following Muhammad. See? Most religions give some sort of lip service to honoring Jesus. And they declare him to be a prophet, a great man, a teacher, a uh, a mystic, a, a miracle worker, whatever. Some of them go so far as to call him a mighty spirit being. There's one cult in particular that defines Jesus as a mighty spirit being. And, and they might go as far as to say that he's a god. One of the cults in specific went back and retranslated the entire Bible to iron out the deity of Christ. They didn't want to admit that he was literally the creator God in the flesh. And so they reworded passages like, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. They translated, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God, little g. <clears throat> Why? Well, see, they claim that they honor him, but they do not confess that he's the almighty God, that he's the creator God, that he's God in the flesh, God the Son, that he's eternally God, and that he's eternally the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, the anointed one, that is eternally the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's what they're denying. But see, to, for us to embrace Jesus, that's the Jesus that we're embracing. 
not some made-up, created being that we might think nice thoughts about. It's this Jesus, the one that's in the Bible. Not some twisted version of that. That's the Jesus we're confessing. That's the Jesus we're embracing. It's the biblical Jesus. He's not just some wonderful human hero. He's God. He's the creator who spoke the world into existence. Think that one over. He spoke and created the world. That's what it says. He spoke the world into existence. He's the king and he's the master and that's where we gag. We don't like him to be the master. See, we like to think that we're the boss. We don't want somebody else to be the boss in our life. You ever hear a little kid say, you're not the boss of me. Yeah, well, Jesus is, whether we like it or not. Each of us still has a sin nature, and we don't like the idea that somebody else is the boss. We all desire self-determination, self-realization, self-direction, self-rule. We say, well, I want to be my own person. From a human perspective, that sounds good. But the fact is, all of that craving for autonomy actually began with Lucifer's sin that destroyed him as a holy angel and destroyed us through Adam. Go back and read it. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. He makes five statements of I will. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the sides of the north. And he, the last one I remember is I will be like the most high. In what way could he be like the most high? Could Satan make himself omniscient? He could know everything? Make your head go this way. No, he couldn't. Could he make himself be everywhere at once? No, he couldn't. He couldn't be all-powerful. He couldn't be all-wise. He couldn't be all-knowing. What could he be to make himself like the Most High? He wanted to be his own boss. He didn't want anybody telling him what to do. I had a believer tell me that one time. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. I said, holy mackerel, man. You've been drinking the wrong Kool-Aid. Yes, Jesus is the master. And for us to embrace Jesus means embracing him as our Lord, embracing him as our master. Embracing Jesus means embracing the tasks on a daily basis that he gives us. Sometimes he wants you to drop what you're doing that's fun and go do something that's not fun because it needs to be done. Fine, then obey him. Go do it. He wants us to embrace the overall job that he's given us as ambassadors of Christ. That's part of our job as ambassadors of Christ is to shine as lights in a dark world and to sound the alarm of the gospel, both the bad news and the good news, telling people about Jesus. A young man I'm close to told me that in these just recent months, he's become obsessed with the, cons with the consciousness that he's been called as a witness, as a watchman, as a guy to give warning to those around him. And he's making appointments and going and telling people about Jesus. And they aren't all people that want to hear it either. And I heard one of them refer to him as a crazy street preacher. Okay? There's going to be some pushback if you do what God asks you to do. If you act as an ambassador of Christ. But part of it is just shining that light of the kindness and goodness and, and forgiveness that flows out of a believer's life into the lives of those around us. We talk about shining that light that we talked about last week. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, So let your light shine among men that your, they may see your good works 
and they give glory and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's how he wants us to shine. Philippians 2.15 says that we shine in this dark world in a perverse and corrupt nation as lights in that dark world. <clears throat> now every winter, I eventually notice that the headlights on my car seem to be getting more and more dim. Some of you can see right away where I'm going with this, but it always takes me a while to figure it out. I just feel like I can't see very well. And I finally get out of the car, find a good place to stop, I get out, and sure enough, my headlights are so encrusted with road grime dried onto them that the burning light inside the headlamp can't get through the dirt to the outside world. Did you hear what I just said? There's a burning light inside that has to get through the dirt on the outside to become visible. It's possible for a believer to be so spotted by the world because we accept their morals, we accept their values, we accept their opinions, we accept their practices, we follow into the, the way of Balaam and the error of Balaam and finally the doctrine of Balaam and we finally realize that nobody can see that light anymore. Why? Because there's so much crud on the outside that nobody can see the light anymore. Right? You don't want to let it get that far. You know, usually I eventually see that, boy, the lights are getting dim and it dawns on me, oh yeah, I'll bet you they're getting dirty. And I pull over and I clean them and Boy, I can see again. Yeah, that's nice. Don't let it get that far. Good people, good drivers, they'll you know, check their oil every day, clean their headlights every day, things like that, clean their license plate off and so forth. But I forget until it's really dirty. So how do we address the dirt that gets into our lives? If you haven't memorized it yet, please memorize 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Once you see there's dirt, stop. Confess it. Get it cleaned off. And then go back to verse 7, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's pretty simple sounding, isn't it? But see, once you've embraced Jesus as your Savior, you need to recognize this is the rest of the story. You embrace him as your master. And you learn to stop frequently and clean the dirt. And this is why we call it walking. You see, there's no coasting. There's no gliding. It's not like a skateboard where you give yourself a big shove and ride for a while and do cool things, make jumps and things like that. No. It's all very simple. It's one step after another, one day after another, walking with Jesus and allowing him to produce his righteousness in you, and allowing him to shine that light from inside you that he produced through to the outside. And the only way we can keep on doing that is to keep that dirt down to a minimum. Keep confessing, keep learning to walk, keep feeding on his word. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we'd ask that you cleanse our lives, teach us to walk in obedience to your word and to your spirit. Let our lives shine as a quiet testimony of your grace and open our mouths to share the gospel with all those around us. We ask that we would consciously realize that we've embraced the cross and with it we've embraced Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And that that word Lord means just that, Lord. He's the master. We want to embrace you in all things, embrace our job as ambassadors of Christ. We ask that you live through us. Let us be your hands and your feet and your voice on this planet. In Jesus' name, amen.